Hi, I'm Connie Loises. And this is Alex Gove. And this is Strictly VC Download. everyone. Happy Friday. We are just back from dinner with friends and it's been a long week. So we are just going to keep it short and snappy and get right to the news. Dominated as it was this week by Elon Musk and his big, bold bid to acquire Twitter. As fellow tech journalist Kara Swisher noted today in her New York Times column, you can say this about Elon Musk. He's never boring. Well, it was yet another crazy day in Elon Musk's quest to acquire Twitter. Today, as I am sure you are aware, Twitter's board adopted a poison pill defense, meaning it will be much more expensive for Musk to acquire Twitter. In response, conservative voices have been blaming Twitter's supposedly liberal bent for its decision to reject Musk's offer. As North Carolina Congressman and Trump acolyte Madison Cawthorn tweeted, How long until Twitter finds a reason to kick Elon Musk off the platform he's trying to buy? At a TED Talk yesterday, Musk told TED head Chris Anderson that he would make several changes to make Twitter more fair. For one, he said he would raise the bar when it comes to banning individuals from the platform, favoring timeouts instead. Mattingly, Anderson did not ask Musk about Twitter's Trump ban. Musk also said he would open-source Twitter's algorithms so that the world could see how Twitter decides to promote certain users and downgrade others. Still, Musk had a hard time responding to Anderson's question about how Twitter should evaluate speech that crosses the line. Since algorithms can't do this yet, Musk agreed that humans had to be involved, but said, quote, If it's a gray area, let the tweet exist. I'm not saying I have all the answers here, he later conceded. Perhaps the biggest riddle in all of this is why we should expect Twitter to be more open and trustworthy if it is owned by just one person. Here's how Anderson framed the question, followed by Musk's hardly reassuring response. Many people are excited by you coming in and the changes you're proposing. Some others are are absolutely horrified. Here's how they would see it. They would say, wait a sec, we agree that, that Twitter is an incredibly important town square. It is where the world exchanges opinion about life and death matters. How on earth could it be owned by the world's richest person? That can't be right. So how how do you, I mean, what's the response there? Is there any way that you can distance yourself from the actual decision-making that matters on content in some very clear way that is convincing to people? Well, like I said, I think the, it's it's very important that the the, the algorithm be open sourced and that any manual uh, adjustments be identified like so if this tweet if somebody did something to a tweet it's there's information attached to it that this that action was taken and i i i i would personally be uh, you know in there editing tweets um so, but, but you'll know if something was done to to promote demote or otherwise affect a tweet um you know as for media sort of ownership i mean you've got you know, um, Mark Zuckerberg owning Facebook and Instagram and WhatsApp, um, and with an, a share ownership structure that will uh, have Mark Zuckerberg the 14th still uh, controlling those uh, entities. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, like literally. Um, <laughs> well, certainly the, the, we won't have that at Twitter. 
In other news, we talked this week with Hans Swildens, the head of a San Francisco-based investment firm called Industry Ventures that's now 22 years old, is managing $5 billion in assets, and has stakes in a whopping 450 different venture funds, among its other investments. Indeed, it's because industry is involved in so many different types of strategies that we like talking to Swildens about what he's seeing. And what he's seeing right now, he said, was stasis. After a year wherein he said he was receiving checks routinely from venture funds when they had a sale or took a company public, he said that those distributions of both stock and cash have slowed to a trickle. The reason is a stock market where almost every tech stock that you can imagine has seen its value sliced in half over the last six months or so. That's bad news right now for so-called fund-to-funds like industry ventures, along with pension funds, universities, and other fund investors, because while on the one hand they're being asked to commit to new funds faster than ever before, suddenly more money is going out the door than coming back as VCs hang on to their shares, hoping they'll rebound in price. Whether they're right to hang on for a bounce back or things trend even lower is the big question, and one on which a lot of careers hang right now. Here's Swildens on what he's seeing. Today, year over year, saw a massive decrease in venture fund stock distributions because all the stocks got hammered. So the venture funds just decided not to distribute when the stocks were going like this. Now that they're sitting down in much lower values, like half off what they were in January, all the venture funds are trying to determine do they hold it or not. But in general, they've been holding so well. Not many venture funds have done distributions during the last three months. It's been a huge drop. We used to get distributions every other day. Oh, wow. Yeah, so I'm in 450 venture funds. Oh, my God. Yeah. So, I mean, I see it, right? I'm in like a third of the whole market as an LP. So we used to get stock every day, every other day. And then this quarter, you know, it's like once every two weeks. Wow, that's really interesting. It's like it's a 90% drop. 80 to 90 in terms of the dollar volume distribution from exit distribution perspective, it's an 80-90% drop, both in cash distributions and in stock distributions. Swildens admits that he's in the same boat. Industry makes direct investments itself, and he says the firm has holdings too that it maybe should have sold earlier this year, but held, and now has to figure out when to distribute to its own investors. In the meantime, he suggests, in the world of VC, there is a lot of watching and waiting and no doubt finger-crossing. And they want to see it flush it out, right? I mean, you can too, right? If you owned a house and it was worth ten million bucks in December and now it's worth six, you'd be like, "What happened? Three months? How can that be possible?" If somebody comes and buys your neighbor's house for five, you're like, "Okay, I got it. like right." It actually dropped, like it was inflated, and so I think that generally the venture funds and the limited partners and everybody else that participates in these securities just kind of needs to see the market price out. Because it's not someone valuing it as a third-party independent valuator or buyer. It's just market pricing. Up next, this week's interview with Brian Roberts, one of the top investors at Venrock, a 52-year-old venture firm that started as the venture arm of the Rockefeller family and is currently investing its ninth fund. Roberts joined us to give us a better overview into a number of areas of health tech, from genomics to the healthcare shortage to why preclinical IPO companies might have to wait a good long while before testing the public waters after getting hammered in the stock market last year. But first, a word from our sponsor. As a founder, you know the headaches of securing startup capital better than anybody. But what if there was an easier way? 
SeedInvest enables founders to find their next investors and biggest evangelists through equity crowdfunding, unleashing the force of nature that is its community of over 600,000 everyday angel investors. Read some of SeedInvest's portfolio success stories or apply for a raise today at go.seedinvest.com slash VC. That's go.seedinvest.com slash VC. And now our interview with Brian Roberts of Venrock, a 52-year-old venture firm that Roberts joined 25 years ago, right after nabbing a PhD in chemistry and chemical biology from Harvard. Roberts focuses on healthcare and life sciences companies, and has backed the now publicly traded companies Athena Health and Illumina, among many others. We talked with him this morning about a variety of companies in the health tech sphere, including Lyra Health, a provider of mental health benefits for employees, and Public Health Company, whose founder, Charity Dean, we once interviewed for this same podcast. Public Health Company sells software to companies around the world that want to be able to plan around disease risk, whether that means holding off on opening a new office because a virus is making its way around the globe, or knowing it's safe again to operate a particular warehouse. More from that chat now. Brian, it's so nice to be talking to you. I'm just realizing it's been 14 months, but I honestly thought it had been longer. So much has happened in the last 14 months. Me too. It's been like a time warp the last 14 months. It's really strange. So so the reason we talked in part last time was you had just raised a $450 million fund for Venrock. So I have to ask, are you in the market again? No, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> we have continued to stick with two and a half to three and a half years in between funds. And I hope that we stick with that. I think lots of firms will talk about time diversification of portfolio construction. Honestly, we do mostly early stage stuff. And I think there's a limit to the number of super early stage businesses you can excellently be involved with at any point in time. I think a lot of our ecosystem has turned to top of funnel business development, deal awareness, deal access, write a check, and then move on to the next thing. I think that for many of us here, that stuff's a means to an end. And the end is that relationship with the entrepreneur and the team and helping them go build a big business. Brian, last year you told Connie that you incubated a new microbiome startup called Federation Bio. What percentage of your portfolio companies do you incubate? It varies pretty dramatically between tech and healthcare. I think overall, it's probably a quarter to a third. I would define incubation as ones where we are spending six to nine months with a founder or something like that prior to funding it. And that happens probably more in both biotech and healthcare IT than it does in some of the other spaces. Are you like pulling people out of academia? Do you have an idea and then you find people to start it or how does that whole process work? Honestly, there's no real model to it. Let's say we rebuild it from the ground up every time. Like I have this thesis that models and pattern recognition and stuff are red herrings in our ecosystem, that we're sort of, we're in the business of exceptions. And so in biotech, oftentimes it is an academic founder. We're working with one right now. We probably have done 
three or four biotech incubations over the course of the last nine months. I'm working with a guy right now who's madly creating more data in the lab, and we're looking for a person to come in and run it. And we're trying to figure out what you would like the first specific programs to be. It's all of that early company building stuff that if you had your druthers, you'd do before you really started the clock on the company and spending a bunch of money, whether it's with space or big teams and running experiments and stuff like that. In the healthcare IT space, it's not generally nine or 12 months, but it can be three or six months. Because certainly in that space, there's lots of tech entrepreneurs who want to come into healthcare IT these days, and they have a whole bunch of skills and a whole bunch of experience. But one of them is not generally a deep understanding of the puts and takes in the healthcare system. And so we tend to spend a bunch of time working through ideas and needs to try and figure out where there's a place that's not only a good idea, but an executable idea. Right, right, right. Great. Well, you know, I also just wanted to make clear for listeners out there, yes, Venrock invests in a wide spectrum of startups, but you, Brian, focus primarily on healthcare, life sciences. And to your point, it's a huge opportunity and it's become really big. And it's no surprise that people are trying to enter into the space who maybe don't have that lab experience. Obviously, the pandemic has really accelerated this shift to remote healthcare. It's a big question, but I'm wondering what some of the most interesting developments on this front are to you. One thing that I was curious about is cybersecurity opportunities and challenges as more patients benefit from connected care. Sure. So interestingly, your mention of cybersecurity makes me think about a company we seeded about six months ago that I would describe as trying to do for physical risks what cybersecurity is doing for electron risks, right? You have the pandemic shut down an enormous number of businesses. You have super complex supply chains. You're going to have COVID around for a while. You're going to end up having other things like climate and other physical biosecurity risks that will impact businesses. And I think the risks there have been brought to the fore by businesses' experiences over the last couple of years. So we actually got involved with a company called the Public Health Company. The founder CEO actually was one of the protagonists in Michael Lewis's book, The Pandemic. I've interviewed her. She's amazing. Oh, Charity? You, mean, you interviewed yeah. Charity? Yeah. yeah. No, yeah. I spend a lot of time with Charity these days. And the, the couple of things that got me super interested there, in addition to her, were the fact that could you create a business that could be like cybersecurity businesses, but for everything outside of the electronic realm? Number one. And number two was in that, let's call it physical world, pick whatever your insult's going to be, the desire for people to better understand their supply chains mm -hmm. and, what, and what are risks to supply chain. It was much more complex, very few, very vertically integrated, where you control everything, businesses to create products. And so we're plugging along on, on that front. Other things in the pandemic, I believe that we have pushed forward the adoption of technology by patients by a decade or two in the last 24 months. The absolute about face of people like, well, I have something I think's wrong. I'm going to the emergency room to people being like, the emergency room is the last place on the universe 
I would like to be with a whole bunch of other sick people. So whether it's home care or virtual care, all sorts of different ways to both access care and the ability to create alignments. One of the big realizations for me over the last couple of years in the whole delivery of healthcare space is that it seems super complicated, lots of people doing lots of different things, but what you really end up needing is the right data at, at the right time to make a good decision and the alignment of incentives so that you care about making a good decision. And if you can find business opportunities that create that, then you actually can get somewhere in the healthcare system. But if you don't have the information to make a good decision, you obviously can't. And a distressing percentage of the time, if you don't have a financial incentive, the, the incentives are not aligned for it to be in your interest to make a good decision, you kind of don't care, mm-hmm. right? And those sorts of things can so slow down adoption of technologies. I'll give you another example. We, a couple of years ago, seeded a business that is an oncology decision support system. 20 years ago, back when I was young, there were like four types of cancer and three cancer treatments, right? And they didn't work super well. They all worked pretty similarly. And so cancer care, while not terrific, was pretty simple. Over the course of the last 20 years, genomics has taken the diagnosis of cancer and made it a thousand or more different specific diseases that are very molecularly driven. And there are now thousands of treatments. If those treatments are correctly matched, they are enormously more effective than they were 20 years ago. But if they're not properly matched, they're not. That's now a very, very complex decision tree. And so it's very hard for one, especially general community doc, to keep all of that stuff in their head. So we should be in a place where technology and software and so on with a bunch of human intervention can be a huge support system to docs in getting good cancer care to everybody and collapsing what one would call the outcomes gap, right? There are a handful of very, very good academic medical centers in the United States where cancer outcomes are materially better than they are everywhere else. And it's really a decision-making process issue there. So getting the right information to the right person at the right time, there's a huge opportunity there. Lots of people get cancer, big differences in outcomes. You can solve that problem. And then the question becomes, okay, how do you find a situation where it's worth it for someone to insert more steps in their workflow, et cetera, and to care about getting a a better answer? And we ended up starting this company in Asia because in that part of the world, there's a bunch of public insurance systems and there's a bunch of what's called critical illness insurance policies that are sold. And so we could actually partner with insurance companies who are selling cancer insurance to people to help them sell policies and improve the outcomes for their patients by getting better decisions made on it, right? And there was an alignment of incentives there. Brian, you talked about the rise of self-care, how during the pandemic, patients were diagnosing some of their own issues through apps. And it seems like in the last year, there's been an explosion of investments in this area. And at the same time, the Wall Street Journal recently reported that hospitals and doctors felt like they are being inundated by startups with different digital health apps. 
Do you feel like there is a mass consolidation of digital health apps and services on the horizon? Yeah, I think there will be. I think across the healthcare IT ecosystem, there will be consolidation. There are many, many point solutions out there. And I think that you will see a host of companies that will get a little traction, but then struggle and either try to expand their purview or sell, right? I mean, you saw it with a bunch of the direct-to-consumer drug companies, Roe, Hims, etc. Most of them started out in some very specific vertical, got some traction, and they're like, holy smokes, it's not actually big enough for us. We got to go do other stuff. How do we do it? Now, maybe they turn out to be like Amazon starting in books and going super broadly, or maybe they in fact need to be consolidated into another piece of the puzzle. Maybe terrific UIs and access to drugs needs to be consolidated into the people who are becoming the digital front door for employees places, virtual primary care folks, right? You've got Teladoc, the doctor on demand is now part of Included Health, right? They do virtual care through video for lots of people. Why wouldn't you put Rx into that and have control of more pieces of a patient's healthcare journey? Brian, so far we've talked about telehealth a little bit, apps, charities company, which helps companies understand disease control and how they can manage for those potential risks, opening, closing warehouses, depending on how the virus, for example, is moving through the world. One thing I'm interested in knowing too is how much time you focus on medical devices, if at all? Yeah, really only on an exceptions basis. We're involved in a couple of medical device companies right now, a company called Reflection, which I I think is going to do terrific things for real-time radiotherapy. We were in a company called Shockwave Zeltique, which was in the aesthetic medicine space. Many medical device companies that we see are nice incremental improvements in something today. I think you see it in the diagnostic space too. And then maybe it's a little bit of the point solution. We tend to be, as an organization, more focused on things that we think are really big material improvements to large problems because of the time frame we feel it takes to build a great product on a great company. Like if you don't start out with dramatically better X today, the likelihood that it's going to be dramatically better in five years when you're actually no longer a gangly prepubescent teenager of a company, I think is pretty small. Got it. I was just before we hopped on this call watching Elon Musk's discussion at TED yesterday. He was talking a little bit more about this robot that he teased earlier this year, but it's called Optimus, this conceptual general purpose robotic humanoid that he said yesterday will cost less than a car. And he imagines becoming ubiquitous. If you're not doing a lot of medical devices, you probably don't get pitched this kind of thing very often. But there's obviously this huge healthcare shortage. The population is aging. It seems like there is a real opportunity there to have more in-home automated help. I think there are a couple of dimensions There is a graying population, whether the US or frankly, even more starkly right now in Japan. There are a couple of issues. One is just the loneliness of seniors. And there's a lot more work and benefit that one could do on that. And I think there's there's some good studies on isolation and loneliness leading to cognitive decline and stuff like that. The second half of it is the medical healthcare side of things. 
And there is absolutely a push and some good work going on with regards to how do you keep, how do you get more data points on someone's health in order to take better care of them? Obviously, if you are older and therefore generally sicker, you have multiple comorbidities, you have more touches with the healthcare system because your body needs it. And therefore, in fact, not just having one or two checkups a year, but having some, whether it's blood pressure cuffs or tests of some form that can provide more data more frequently to your care providers, then you can both lower healthcare costs and dramatically improve outcomes. 10 years ago, I got pitched somebody who was integrating an EKG, so a cardiogram for your, for your heart, into the back of an iPhone case. And my only thought was, if I did that, my cardiologist would fire me. He doesn't want that much data on me, right? You can obviously take it too far, but for the elderly population who are sicker and less mobile, 100%, right? Getting them better data and better care in the home will be a big thing. I think it is not going to be robots anytime soon. It is going to be a variety of devices. Most people have Wi-Fi or smartphones or something, right? That can then be sent to algorithms so that it gets sorted. And if there's something that is different or important, that gets surfaced to a human. Is the my bet is how it runs in the next five to seven years, Brian? What areas in health tech, in biotech, in the areas in which you invest are you particularly interested in? What areas do you want entrepreneurs to pitch you? For example, Connie recently did a story about a company called Vera Health that is attempting to help women through menopause. Female health is a neglected area. Is that an area in which you're investing? For sure. We have not made an investment in the women's health space. We have tended to gravitate towards businesses that have a pretty strong data or technology component to it and stayed away from the more bricks and mortar new businesses. I think there's a terrific need in the women's health space, and I've not yet come across the early stage business that I see as leveraging the data and technology and driving some greater scalability than just opening up new clinics all the time. The places that we have spent a bunch of time on in the healthcare IT space, it's absolutely been in the value-based care alignment of financial interests and serving up of data and information. We invested earlier this year in a next generation PBM. It's an oligopoly of some very large businesses with some wonky incentives and less transparency than much of the world would like. And we invested in a little business that's been going for a little while called Smith RX, that is a transparency fully aligned with their customers' PBM. Which, just for people who don't know, you're talking about pharmacy benefit managers. Yes, exactly. So these are the people who, when you get prescribed a drug, coordinate what the drug is, where you get, who pays what for it. In the biotech space, we continue to be super interested in the genomic space. I think there's a bunch of interesting stuff going on, not just in the tools. We have a, a pretty long history in Illumina and 10X genomics in the tool space, but now the downstream biological discoveries 
actually coming out of those high throughput, single cell synthetic biology tools. We're really in a golden age of new therapeutic modalities in the biotech space, complex therapy, cell therapy, gene therapy, that are today in very specific use cases providing extraordinary results. But the workflow is hard. It's expensive. It's sort of like any early industry. You have these flashes of just brilliance where you've matched the right key to the right lock, but everything else around it is still super nascent and needs lots of maturation. How do you invest in that? You're talking about long time horizons. And of course, you're running what I assume are like 10 year funds. I, I think the whole cell generation stuff is so fascinating. My own father had an autologous bone marrow transplant around 25 years ago that saved his life. So I appreciate the promise of stem cell therapies in particular. Where are you seeing the most progress and also where you're seeing claims that are kind of questionable and then how you sort through these as an investor knowing that in some cases the timeline could be really long. First, I want to confess to you that anybody who says they're running a 10-year early stage venture fund is blowing smoke. They, re <laughs> they really end up being 15-year venture funds. Not that that helps on the timeframes that you're talking about. I would tell you that for me, most of the of the terrific results in cell therapies and gene therapies have been in the oncology space. Okay. You've oncology, as we talked about a little bit earlier, has now become one where it's less defined symptomatically and more defined on a molecular mechanism basis. So you know, like specifically in the genome, what's going wrong, and you can create therapies to go after those specific things. They've worked well in blood cancers where the cancer is running around in your bloodstream less well so far in solid tumors. Certainly lots of people working on it is certainly the next horizon that people make a bunch of progress in. I would tell you something that's a little further out, but I think will be really interesting for the next five, 10 years is in the central nervous system space. In CNS, you again have symptomatically defined diseases today. Depression, I bet you molecularly there are a hundred different types of depression with various different things in them. And I think the same is true of neurodegenerative diseases, right? You've got Alzheimer's and age-related cognitive decline and a bunch of things. We will figure out the molecular mechanisms there and parse those apart into very different separate diseases and then be able to target those diseases much, much better than we do today. CNS is sort of the next cancer. I think we don't understand enough about the aging biology. There's been a bunch of work on aging and regeneration and stuff like that. I think that's going to be a long time off because we just don't understand the biology well enough yet. Yeah, I think that stuff, uh, maybe that's what raises the most questions for me. Obviously, it would be wonderful. But to Alex's point about femtech, Steve Jervitson, for example, had funded a company that sounds really interesting and they want to extend the life of ovaries, essentially. Their argument being that Women are living longer and their ovaries are essentially shutting down at the same time they always have, causing all kinds of health consequences for a longer period of time as they live longer. Anyway, I thought, oh, that's a really fascinating prospect. Are we anywhere close to something like that? I think we understand maybe 10% of biology. We have a long way to go before biology becomes more like a chess match that's complex, but you know everything versus poker, where you're still turning cards over in the future that could totally change the game. Brian, you mentioned genomics and you're on the board of 10X Genomics and we're an early investor. I'm just wondering what 
is happening with the company. It had a pretty hot run during the pandemic. It reached a 52-week high of $208, and now it's trading in the 60s. Just wondering what you can say about how the public markets are reacting to genomics companies, whether or not they understand the full potential there. Yeah, you know, we were seed investors in Cloudflare too, and I think you could have nearly replaced the company names there. I feel like starting about six months ago, the world, for the first time in a long time, went into a more risk-off position than it Mm -hmm. had been. Like we've been risk-on, risk-on, risk-on. And if you're risk-on, you're betting futures. Terminal value of businesses are much higher because you expect more to happen, your discount rates are lower and so on. I feel like everybody's multiples were cut in half. Even companies as they continue to progress, right? And if you lose half your multiple, it takes a little while to, to grow your way through that. And that's what I think has been going on. And honestly, it's much easier to have conversations about how do you go about building a company appropriately today than it was a year or two or three ago, right? Like it felt like we were deep into, I don't know, blitz scaling, grow fast, grow fast, grow fast, rather than let's figure out what we're going to do and let's have an embarrassing product in front of as few people as possible. Let's work our shit out and then go grow rather than trying to do everything in parallel. Yeah. I I talked this week, I don't know if you happen to catch it, with Hans Wildens of Industry Ventures, who, to my astonishment, has stakes in 450 different funds. And he was saying that distributions have fallen off a cliff because everyone has, like you said, a lot of their holdings got halved (laughs) over the last six months and nobody wants to distribute their shares, understandably. I am wondering what is going on in terms of your outlook for 2022, so many preclinical biotech companies went public last year, maybe too many. It seems like the sure, market had sure. a hard time digesting them. What does that mean for you? Is that something that you can wait out? How are you advising your companies since that doesn't seem probably to be as much of an opportunity right now? So I sat down with our partnership in the fall of 2015 or something. I was like, oh my God, you guys, this market is so hot. Any company that we have that's remotely growth stage, we need to get them money and then tell them not to spend it super fast. (laughs) So I was a little early on that whole thing, right? Probably every one of those companies that we had raised money then raised money again (laughs) in the the intervening time period. But let's step back a sec. What percentage of people in our ecosystem do you think have been through a downturn? A very small percentage. (laughs) Right. And so they've grown up and never known anything other than the market they were in, which was sort of raise money, build. If you run out of money and you don't hit your milestones, that's okay. You'll raise an up round anyway. And let's keep going. I'm sure in everybody's portfolio, there's a handful of companies that had studiously planned to raise money in the first half of 2022. And that's a problem, right? Like that's why you hope you had good investors and a broad syndicate and everybody give you some money to get out a year just so that the market has settled. A bunch of investors have been nursing wounds in a portfolio, but a bunch of the other ones are just like, I kind of want to see what's going to happen with the market. Like, It doesn't feel like it's stabilized a ton yet. The discussions I was having, it happened in January, really, when you do budgets for 2022, was, look, it's not prudent to build up a huge expense rate in the first half of the year in hopes that revenue is going to come in the second half. And that's what a bunch of it was. Biotech is even a more special case, right? Because those companies don't have revenue for seven or 10 years after they get started. 
when things go risk off, biotech is one of the first places they really risk off and one of the last places they come back. So there you've just got to, again, broad syndicates, don't be greedy and focus on focus on getting really out of the risk capital into the growth capital phase of these businesses. I feel like all the businesses we invest in across industries have some time period where it's existential risk capital. Should the company deserve to exist next week or not? And then they hit some milestone data point where people are like, oh, there's a there there. There's a product there. There's a business there. Then the question becomes, not should you exist next week or not, but what's the price for capital and how efficient can you be? Brian, Lyra Health is one of your companies. It's a really interesting company founded by Facebook's former CFO, David Ebersman, in 2014. Why isn't this company publicly traded already? It raised $235 million earlier this year, has raised $915 million altogether, $5.5 billion valuation. Just curious if this should have maybe gone out last year. No, I don't think so. I'm not a go public early investor. I want to go public when I have two things. One, I think I have an interesting business for the next three to five years from a growth margins, et cetera, perspective. And two, it's predictable. I'm not guessing at things. And so we have a whole range of businesses, probably have five or six of them right now that are doing 300 to 500 million in revenue that remain private. On the plus side, They're not businesses generally that are burning tons of capital, which just gives you flexibility on when you access public markets. Speaking about Lyra specifically, they're continuing to build out their product suite and don't have a need to be a public business. And so hasn't been a priority. Brian, last year, a Forbes opinion piece heralded blockchain's potential impact on healthcare in areas like securely sharing sensitive patient data, contract management, et cetera. This is definitely a risk on area of VC investment, (laughs) but are you seeing blockchain having an impact in the healthcare market? I have seen a bunch of projects that have cited blockchain and have not yet found one where I thought that it would be a material contributor to building a big business in healthcare. Okay. And you're not going to elaborate on that. It looks like. Oh, no, I can elaborate <laughs> on it. Like, like, I'm kidding. No, like, no, I can't. Like, look, I think blockchain has shown itself to be really interesting for, for some specific use cases, right? Complete transparency and immutability of digital assets, stuff like that. I've seen them in as you mentioned, patient data. I've seen it in both electronic data as well as genomic data. The issues have been more use cases need, what scale do you need of data for the data to be of use to anybody? Not, can you create a community around the data? Brian, I'd seen that last month, nearly 100,000, quote, highly diverse whole genome sequences were made available through NIH. It's all of us research program. And I guess 50% of that data is from individuals who identify with racial or ethnic groups that have been historically underrepresented in research. I was just wondering, is this a big deal or, or not? Having a better sense for the diversity of genomics and genomic backgrounds across various different populations is actually super important. We have experiences over the years idiosyncratically of using that to discover diseases and treatments. I think that there is lots more 
to be learned both from that diversity as well as frankly improving treatments and diagnoses for some of those underrepresented populations who have historically been very underrepresented in the drug discovery process. So I think that is a big deal. Brian, so great to talk to you. Have a wonderful weekend. Okay, we'll talk to you soon. Thanks for joining us, everybody. And thanks especially to this week's sponsor, Seed Invest. We'll see you here next week. Take care and have a great weekend.